Lord Jesus, today we come before the altar of grace, the reminder of God's presence, and we reflect on your great compassion for us, a passion that led you to the cross, a compassion that led you to redeem us despite our unworthiness. <clears throat> we reflect on your amazing grace that saves a wretch like me. We think, Lord, about how often we complain to you about trivial things. We think about those times when we're petty with each other and with you. We think about these times when inconvenience becomes a matter of prayer and our tastes become a matter of prayer and discord. Oh Lord, we humbly apologize for our pettiness, for our dreadful humanness, and we ask, Lord, that you remake us into a divine holiness. We know we're a work that takes a lot of process, or a process that takes a lot of work. We're people who need your constant intervention in order to be all that you would call us to be. And so as your humble servants, Lord, we do come and ask that our prayers might be refocused to the main thing and that whatever we ask, you might interpret it in your mind as what is needed most. And so when we're perplexed and confused about our career choices, when we're perplexed and confused about our financial status, or when we're anxious because of problems with mechanical things like our air conditioning or our car or some other aspect of our lives, we, we ask, Lord, that you help us to reframe it. Not that you won't help us with those things, but that we will recognize them in the context of the main thing. And that's why, Lord, we ask for your help here at the church as we fix broken things, as we upgrade and repair things that have been neglected, Lord, we ask that you would reframe it in our hearts as being part of your vision for this congregation and this community of faith, this Shiloh. You would help us reframe all that we do here, whether fiscal or spiritual, as part of and in intricately involved in your mission to save souls and to bring people into a lasting relationship with you through Christ, our Lord, the Lord of Shiloh. We ask, Lord, that as we pray about physical things, we also remember our hearts and our health, that we pray about our physical bodies and our spiritual bodies, that we pray about our that, that we pray that our physical nature might be uplifted and upgraded and, and, and secured so that we can continue to fulfill your purpose for our lives. And so we pray, Lord, that where our health has been poor, that you'll continue to restore our health. We give thanks to those who treat us and who, whether being your friends or not, have unraveled the mysteries of your creation and given us treatments and care that restores our lives, because we know, Lord, that that comes from you, that it is your treasure trove of knowledge that 
keeps the airplane in the air, that keeps the, the, uh, the medicines that change our health for the better functioning the way they do, that it is your knowledge of the creation you made being discovered daily by the minds that you instilled with your very divine nature. Father, we pray that while we celebrate the healing and restoration of some, we continue to mourn the loss of others. We recognize that because of sin, there is a entropy in the world that leads to the ultimate death of all living things. But we give you glory because you have made us more than the substance that we exist in. We are spiritual beings that outlast these temporary bodies. We give you praise and thanksgiving, Lord, that you have promised that even these bodies will be restored one day. That with our own eyes and our own flesh, we will see our Redeemer face to face. Oh Lord, we pray and praise this morning with thanksgiving for all the blessings, all the answered prayers, and we plead with you for help in ways that we don't fully know how to speak to, but you do know what we need and what we should focus on, and so we ask your Holy Spirit to meld with our spirits and to change the very nature of our thought. Lord, please help us even as we try to name everything, we realize how inadequate our prayer is. Help us, Lord, then to find completeness in the words that Jesus taught us as together we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Next week at this time, we're going to have a very special guest speaker, and I hope that you will come back and bring as many people with you as you can because Tony Wolf is a nationally known speaker and he's going to really give us a blessing. And if you're familiar with some of the contemporary Christian music by Crowder and Mercy Me, for example, he's, all, he's part of all of that. And, and it's gonna be a very special time and I really wanna encourage you to pass the word and get uh, as many people here as you can for this special occasion. How, how many of you would like to see all the empty spaces in our pews filled every Sunday. Raise your hand. All right. See, I have this theory about church, and, and I was at a, last week I visited a church that uh, I once served and had a very special time with them, and I remember telling them years ago, all I ask is that we use what God has given us. So if it's a tiny little church and it only holds 50 people, but only 20 show up, then why aren't we filling it with 50 people? So all I'm telling you is, is my theory is really simple. God gave us this many pews, they should always be full. That's, that's how I look at it. And if you agree with me, then hang on, because I'm not going to let you off the hook. But for now, let's take a look at today's message. <clears throat> we are 
going to read from the Gospel of Luke. We're going to read chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. So if you want to find that in your Bible right now, it will help you to follow along. Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. In that pew Bible that you have there, it's on page 1032, 1032. It's at the bottom right-hand page there. 25 is under the heading that says the parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put, to him, put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God and with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest who was, uh, was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him <clears throat> and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So while I was on vacation last month, I was encouraged to watch a television show called The Good Place. Anybody ever seen that show, The Good Place? Well, of course Bethany saw it. She's the one that turned me on to it. I really had no particular interest in watching this show because all I could imagine was that it was just Hollywood trying to diss religion again, you know, because that's kind of what Hollywood likes to do these days. And so I just imagined that they would be disrespectful to the religious and that they would mock faithful people. And I didn't have any interest in watching it. And Bethany said, well, you know, I think you might be surprised. And so I was. I watched the show and I found that it presents from a pretty much entirely secular philosophical viewpoint the kind of moral dilemmas that humanity is confronted with. I read an article in lifehacker.com that said, despite its quirky humor and overly lit sets, The Good Place manages to tackle some of the biggest moral quandaries life has to offer in each episode by teaching lessons with some very real philosophy. Well, I don't know how many of you have had courses in philosophy. I have, and you know, they do, in fact, take quotes right out of Immanuel Kant and Locke and people like that. In his article, this gentleman says that some of the conclusions they draw in almost every episode is that being good is something you have to learn 
and must practice that, that doing good doesn't necessarily make you good, and that goodness and morality are generally ambiguous. So this is, this is the conclusion that you get watching the show called The Good Place. Now I've kind of gotten sucked into the show and so I watch a few episodes at a time whenever I can and, and uh, I have to say quite honestly, it gives Judeo-Christian morality a boost because people who watch this show and are irreligious have to at least be able to recognize that without a particular absolute to draw upon, there are no certainties about the conclusions that this show draws. In other words, whether they meant to or not, this show leaves you wondering exactly what the right thing is every episode because it doesn't point to a source of moral absolutes. So that's why we have what we call a biblical morality that's based on our belief in God and our belief that our creator knows what's best for us. That's why when Jesus says God incarnate came and described something like the good neighbor, it is an absolute moral certainty and a truth that we believers hold dear. See, most scriptures leave us with little ambiguity about moral things, but not all. And that's why Christians to this moment are debating certain moral things over and over and over again. Because scripture is somewhat inconclusive about certain things. But most of the time, scripture is pretty direct and accurate in its estimation of the human condition and the best moral response, or God's best practices for the human condition. So in today's reading, we're hearing basically Jesus ask the question, who's the good neighbor? Just like we saw with the buckets and the cross. And it turns out that this lawyer is trying to trip Jesus up with this question, but Jesus ends up tripping him up by simply boiling it down to the most essential good moral quality. And that's where we get into trouble because see, comfortable people don't like to be made uncomfortable. You see, the lawyer's very comfortable with his religious status. He's very comfortable with his, his uh, position of self-appointed goodness. If you ask most people if there's a heaven, they'll say, I sure hope so, or yes. And if you ask them if they think they'll go there, their answer will almost certainly be, well, yeah, I think so, because I've been a good person. As if good is something that you can quantify and you can determine because you're good that you deserve to go to heaven. But in reality, goodness without a moral absolute given by God the Creator is really subjective. You see, the problem with secular humanism in this case is, is that, that every time they try to draw a conclusion, they're confronted with this need to not be judged or to pass judgment on others, which means that every moral decision they make is subjective. It's sort of like the basketball running around the rim endlessly without ever dropping in and scoring a goal because they can't land on a complete particular conclusion. In his classic work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. People who say there are no moral absolutes end up going backward on that statement because 
they try to tell you that there are absolutely no absolutes, which is circle in the rim without ever scoring a goal. There is an absolute, and God the Creator has established it. Therefore, whether we do right or wrong or good or evil is, in fact, a conclusion that God can draw. Because at the end of the day, as Jesus was trying to communicate to the lawyer who posed the question to him, it's really a question of the heart, the condition of a person's heart. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. The Lord weighs the heart. So when people start to try and judge one another from some moral high ground, it's basically subjective. It's like your high ground is based on your opinion of what is good and evil and what is right and wrong, and it's your determination about what another person is doing and whether they're right or wrong. We spend an awful lot of time passing judgment on others every day. Now, some of what we do is meant to be for our own preservation. In other words, we profile people and situations every day of our lives. We have to. You're driving down the road, you see someone on the side of the road appears to need help, and you have to decide, what should I do? Should I help this person? Should I stop and put myself at risk and lend aid to a person in trouble? Or do I, do I risk letting them suffer and move on? We make moral decisions every day of this kind. And if that were the basis upon which whether, you know, we're going to get into heaven or not, we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? We'd all be in trouble if our place in heaven was determined by how many good deeds we do. And so Jesus is not telling this story as a way of illustrating what good deeds mean to the permanent relationship we have with God. But he is saying that there is a character trait, a moral quality that is important here. When I think about that lawyer walking away from the conversation, I can imagine him shaking his head saying, eh, you lost me when you said good Samaritan. There's no such thing. The man's already made conclusions about Samaritans most of his ilk would have. And so he was already not with Jesus when the proposed scenario involved a good Samaritan. So what does this say about the nature of the lawyer's heart? What does it say about the condition of his moral character? That it's subjective. That you can't be good unless you're not a Samaritan. Or better yet, you're good if you're a practicing Jew. So Jesus puts this to the test by saying, well, two really good Jews walked by a man who was left for dead and did nothing. But a Samaritan did everything and more to assure this person would be okay. And then even the lawyer had to agree that the Samaritan was the one who was a good neighbor. So Jesus draws social morality into the conversation, but he ends the conversation with the absolute truth that is God's morality. And God simply says, the one who shows mercy is good. What is the quality that's being demonstrated that means the most to Jesus? It's mercy. 
It has nothing to do with social status. It has nothing to do with how many good deeds you do or anything. It's about the nature of the man's heart. The man who showed compassion had mercy in his heart. And this Jesus qualifies as the vital characteristic. And that makes sense when you think about it because it is Jesus who, after all, has gone to the cross to provide mercy and grace for us. If I go back to C.S. Lewis again, and by the way, if you haven't read Mere Christianity, this is an absolute essential read for any serious Christian. I'm saying that with confidence because I'm telling you that it really is one of the greatest apologetics that is the explanation of what Christians are all about ever written. And it's contemporary, even if it's 70 something years old now. And furthermore, if you wanna have a deeper dive discussion with it, well, it just so happens my daughter Bethany and I have been podcasting a discussion of this book for several months now, and we're not done yet. So you can go to our podcast, Knowing God with Heart and Mind, and you can listen to the discussion about mere Christianity. But now that the commercial's over, let me get us back to the point here. The thing C.S. Lewis wants us to understand is, is that God has designed in us a certain moral programming, that we are basically designed with certain standards of morality programmed into our nature, and that sin and uh, the influence of Satan have corrupted that process. He says that the human machine has a basic design, and we tend to defy it. Now, another person I really like to quote from is Chuck Swindoll, one of the greatest preachers I would listen to. And Chuck Swindoll put it this way. He said, it's sort of like a guy buying a brand new car, and then he takes his buddy out for a drive in the car, and a red light starts flashing on the dashboard, and so he asks his buddy to reach in the glove box and hand him the hammer he's got in there. And so the guy hands him the hammer, and the driver of the car starts beating on the dash till the red light goes out. Meanwhile, smoke is pouring out from under the hood of the vehicle, but he says, we've solved the problem, there's no more red light anymore. Dave, how would that work on one of your airliners? <laughs> I'm really glad you don't do that. If I happen to be in the back of your 747 or something, I'm gonna be grateful that you actually pay attention to those red lights and warnings when they come on. You see, that's what our design is all about. C.S. Lewis wants us to understand that we have these natural warning signs that, go, that alert us to when we are violating some of the moral code that's written into our DNA. And the problem is, is that in our society and in all of Christendom, really, there's this tendency to ignore the ones we don't want to deal with. You know, and, and the problem there, I remember I had this car, I just remembered this, Laura, Back in 1981, I had this Chevelle Malibu that leaked oil terribly. And I'd be driving down the road in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the little red light would come on, and I'd just start singing this song. Oh, the red light's on, the red light's on, means that all my oil is gone. <laughs> and then I'd pull over, go back to the trunk, and get out another can of oil. That's when oil came in cans, people. And you had to open it with a special spout, and, and I would pour some oil into the engine, and keep going until the next time, the red light's on, the red light's on, and so forth. But I didn't ignore it. 
So what Lewis and really what we all understand, he's just very accurately described the situation is that we've been designed by our creator to know instinctively that some things are wrong, that some behavior, some thoughts, some values are incorrect, and yet many, many, many people spend their lives using that hammer to knock out the light so it doesn't warn us. And then, quite honestly, when they come talk to Pastor Dan about their problems, sometimes I listen, and I think, not with arrogance or condescension, but I just listen and I think, thank you, God, because what I understand is, is that you said that this would happen if that happened. You know, the, the cause and effect is there. Some of the problems you're experiencing in your life may very well be because you ignore the warning signs that your natural programming are trying to give you. You can go back to a certain point and realize that you chose to ignore the warning. And this is part of the consequence of that. It isn't as though God is frowning upon you. It isn't as though God is punishing you. It's simply that you are experiencing the cause and effect of violating what God has naturally programmed into your being. Now, in case you think that this is a failure on your part, keep in mind that it is, as the Bible would describe it, the failure of Adam. That is to say, it became part of the human nature to disregard the natural programming that God has designed in us, despite the wisdom of it. Now, to kind of wind this down, let me just tell you that C.S. Lewis again offers impeccable logic and explains to us that then the only cure for what's wrong with us is penitence or repentance. And the interesting thing is, as C.S. Lewis puts it, is that the person who needs repentance the most is the least qualified to give the amount of repentance it would take in order to redeem themselves. In other words, the worse you are as a sinner, the harder it is for you to redeem yourself. And the closer you are to holiness, the easier, but still, it's not enough. And so what C.S. Lewis calls the perfect penitent is necessary. Now this is without doubt one of the greatest arguments I've ever heard for the divine human, that is the fully God, fully human savior. Because he simply says that no one can be the perfect penitent or the perfect redeemer except for God. And yet, no one can redeem humanity except in the flesh. And therefore, we have Jesus, who was fully God and fully human, who lives the perfect life so that he is the perfect redeemer, the perfect penitent, and yet he is human, therefore he can die and suffer the penalty of sin and the violation of our design. And by doing so, he redeems us. He not only redeems the flesh, but he redeems the soul. And this is a kind of acceptance that leads to our reprogramming or our rightness with God. 
This is pretty heavy, but I think if you'll follow me carefully here, you'll understand that what we're driving toward is the realization that if you accept that Christ has done this for you, then you are at the crossroads where you can make a decision that leads you into your own redemption. You can recognize that you need repentance and you need Penitence, that is, you need to say to God, I know that I can't redeem myself. I know I violate this programming that you put into me. I know that I routinely do evil in your sight and that nothing I ever do is really good, not when we are confronted with the holiness of God. And I am sorry for that, Lord, and if I could fix it, I would. And the Lord says to you, I fixed it. All you have to do is receive that gift. All you have to do is accept that fix. And the fix is Jesus. Instead of beating the lights until they go out, you go into the shop and you get a complete overhaul. And this is what it means to be born again. This is what it means to have your nature made over. On the outside, you still look the same. On the inside, you've been made over. You've been given new birth, new life in Christ. Through him, you have redeemed your eternal being. And you have sort of rewritten the software of your nature so that it can receive regular updates through the Holy Spirit. Remember years ago when you would go to use your computer and the thing was busy updating and it would be so frustrating because you were trying to use it, but you couldn't because it was busy uploading or downloading or doing something like that? Aren't you glad that now when you're sleeping at night or whatever, your computer does its updates or when you're using your smartphone and it says you, your, your last 18 apps just got updated, you know? This is what it means. We, we're receiving a new software from God through the Holy Spirit. And while we pray, while we listen to scripture, while we allow ourselves to be instructed in the word, while we invite God to reach us wherever we can be found, we're being upgraded constantly and improved. That's the whole point, you know. That's the essence of what it is to be a Christian, to have been transformed in your basic nature by the sacrifice of Christ and the redemption that only he could provide, and then to begin a new life in Christ that causes you to be forever and continually pressing on towards personal holiness. And it is that personal holiness that we strive for. The word holiness just means set apart. And so I leave you with this conclusion. If you are personally striving for holiness, then it means that you are constantly allowing yourself to be drawn away from the fray. That you are walking with the Samaritan who helps the one in need, instead of walking on the other side of the road with the others who prefer to proclaim righteousness through their religious behavior, but who live out their righteousness in ways that don't do any earthly good. And this is why our vision here at Shiloh is to be of tremendous earthly good to this community. We've decided the best thing we can do is be vital to the well-being of this community through our discipleship. So by being transformed believers 
who are constantly striving for greater personal holiness, we think that the things we do and say might actually improve the community simply because we choose to walk on the side of the road where the need exists instead of walking outside of it as though we're better or separate or afraid. Well, that's a lot to chew on. That's why I'm not going to preach next week, because you're going to need the next two weeks to think all this over. I hope you carry this discussion on amongst yourselves and in your classes. But for now, let me pray. Holy God, you've called us into a holy relationship with you. We've been asked to have ourselves made over and made separate. We're not above the world, we're in the world, but we are remade so that our nature is more like yours than what it used to be. Help us, Lord, we pray. For those who have not accepted the gift of redemption, I pray this would be the day that they would say, yes, Jesus, I am a sinner and I am so grateful that you have redeemed me and made me right with my creator. I welcome the rewriting of my software, of the inner person. I welcome a makeover. I don't want to ignore the warning signs anymore. And I give you all the glory, Lord, for the trouble you've gone to to make me eternal and full of mercy and grace like you. Lord, for that person, I pray especially today, but for all of us, Lord, let us walk on the side of the road where mercy happens every day. Amen.